Hello and welcome to the Marketing Mashup Podcast. This podcast is where we bring you the most interesting perspectives on marketing from some of the best minds in the industry. Today I'm with Gray Baker. Gray is the co-founder and CEO of Dependabot, which is a service that makes it easy for developers to keep the third-party dependencies their code users up to date. Gray has had a really interesting career, starting out at McKinsey, to then helping grow Go Cardless from six to 100 people, before embarking on a seven-month cycle tour around the world. When he settled back to the UK, he started to build Dependabot, uh, which has now reached around $14,000 MRR. It wasn't quite as easy as that, though. Um, in this episode, we're going to dive into a little bit of Gray's ups and downs of building a bootstrap SaaS business, as well as a little bit of insight into his time at Go Cardless. Welcome to the podcast, Gray. Hey, James. Great to be here. With most of my guests, I, I like to take a little trip down memory lane, look at sort of your past. How did you get to to where you were? Um, you studied at University of Cambridge, didn't you? I did, yeah. Long time ago now. Feels like another life. What did you study and why? Uh, I did a maths degree first up, and then I left and kind of messed around for a year, and then I went back and did another two years of economics. What were your ambitions when you decided, I'm going to go to University of Cambridge? What did you want to do? Because uh, I bet you didn't think, I'm going to run a, uh, a bootstrap startup. I did not have a clue what I was going to do. Part of the appeal of doing maths as a degree is it doesn't actually turn into any kind of profession. <laughs> there were really very few professional mathematicians, so I was like, right, I'll just defer all of that shit uh, and hopefully have some fun kind of came back to bite me because I, I got to the end of my maths degree and then I graduated and I still didn't have a clue what I wanted to do at all uh, and it got a bit more pressing. So then I did a bunch of weird internships. My first job was in Delhi. I, I went to this interview and at the end of the interview they said, oh, as you know, the, uh, the job is based in Delhi, but I can see you've travelled a bit so I'm sure that's fine. And I thought, I had literally no idea that suddenly <laughs> I actually want this job. Um... So yeah, they flew me out two days later and I was like, do I not need any jabs or anything like that? And they said, just don't get bitten by any monkeys. So after that, I went and worked at JP Morgan on an internship. You can get an internship at the investment banks really easily if you don't apply for the summer internships because nobody mm. else can do internships in spring. So they get all of the like, you know, kind of half rate kids like me for that. But then I managed to roll it into a summer internship as well because I just really needed the cash to be able to pay to go back and do a master's. Um, so, yeah, that was that was a lot less interesting than, than the adventures in Delhi. Pizza's here. So we just finished our pizzas. They're very nice. And we also just had a brilliant chat about Gray's, um, Gray's cycle trip around around the world, which, which we will touch upon briefly. Um, but right now you've just left JP Morgan on your internship gone back to Cambridge to study economics? Yeah, economics. So why'd you do that? At the time, I thought I had this big life plan uh, where I wanted to end up in international development, wanted to make like a positive difference, help people, and I thought the way to do it was you know, to end up somewhere like the World Bank or the UN, and I needed a master's in a relevant discipline. So having gone from like that maths degree where it was like the point of doing the maths degree is it didn't lead anywhere, I was like, now I need the degree that leads somewhere. And that was going to be economics. Then what do you do after you left the, the economics degree? Or the, sorry, the master's. Yeah, so I did two years of economics and I like, really enjoyed it. 
And I got like close to the end and I applied for one of those kind of save the world jobs. I also applied for a really not save the world job, which was McKinsey, which is just a big corporate <laughs> that is the opposite <laughs> strategy consultancy gig. Yeah. I mean, like they're not deliberately destroying the world. But, uh, and they, you know, they do some good third sector stuff. Like, you know, don't need to be an advert for McKinsey. But I got the McKinsey thing and I just thought, you know what? This place looks really good. The training's going to be amazing. I was kind of like beguiled by this opportunity to work with smart people and CEOs and all that kind of stuff. So I took that and put all of my, like, you know, save the world ambitions on hold for a couple of years. So you, you've done McKinsey, big corporation, huge corporation. You've done the corporate stuff. Um, you've learned a lot. You've enjoyed your problem solving. Um, after that, you had a pretty big change. You went to a six-person startup, um, Go Cardless. What made you switch from big corporate to small startup? Um, I wanted to do my own thing. And were, were you entrepreneurial at this stage? So when you were younger, were you doing... Nah, like... I just, People always have great stories about how they used to run like lemonade stores and stuff. <laughs> yeah. I haven't got any of that. Oh. I like, mm, yeah, no, I was kind of lazy as a kid. I didn't, didn't do any summer jobs. I mean, I, I mowed lawns, but like, you know, I didn't pull myself up by my boot strings or anything like that. I was leaving McKinsey. You, I, at the time, you went in on this like two-year fixed-term contract and they kicked you out after two years, which I loved the idea of because it was like you don't have to like, you know, commit to them. You don't disappoint anybody at the end of it. And I was like, I'm going to you know, learn how to start a thing. And I thought I was going to start something where I uh, did rental furniture. People that were moving into flats were wanting to like, you know, be able to rent their furniture as well. It's a terrible idea. And it turns out like, it has like, massive like, capital investment problems. And I didn't have any capital. So, uh, so I, I canned that one and realized that the way that you do a startup if you are poor is you learn how to code because writing code is kind of like it just costs you your time and i had loads of time but no money so i sat in a library teaching myself how to code six months which was uh interesting wait so sorry i thought you went straight from mckinsey left straight into your next job so you just nah. you left after your fixed term two years you didn't know how to code so you're not gray 12 year old in his bedroom coding some sort of app nah. Yeah. You're not. You, you're how old at this point? At this point, I'm 25. 25, and you think, you know what? I need to learn how to code. Yeah. Great. That's, that's, pre that's pretty impressive. I, I'm, I'm quite surprised by that. So you, you go into the library. Ca carry on. Tell me more. Yeah. So I, I found out that you could... There aren't many libraries that you can just like work in for free, which is a bit sad, really. They're mostly like borrowing libraries, which don't have any space to work at all. Or they're like universities where you have to be a university student. And I couldn't afford to be a university student. <laughs> but the LSE library will give you a reader, will give a reader's card to anybody. What's the LSE library? London School of Economics. Oh, okay. It's this, it's this massive library in the middle of London and anybody can get a card. So I got a card to be in the LSE library. And it turns out LSE students don't really go to the library except during exam term. So, like, until, like, something like May rolled around, I had it to myself. And I sat there with this pile of books on, like, how to program in Python and JavaScript. And then I had a book on CSS and I had a book on regular expressions and I had a book on Git. And I read all of them. I think I'm one of the few people that's read that regex book. And I was building this little prototype thing 
for my brother who was running a samba band. So I was building a website to help him keep track of his instruments as my practice project. And I kind of got good enough to be dangerous and then got to the point where I was like, okay, well, now I need an actual idea to build. I got the skills to build, but I don't actually have an idea. How long ago is this? That reading books. Yeah. Yeah, that was like eight years ago. My, because n- nowadays it's so accessible to learn these things. Yeah. So accessible. None of that stuff was there. So like Code Academy hadn't launched, or maybe they had, but they were only JavaScript and only little snippets. And all the rest wasn't really there. There was no Makers Academy or General Assembly, I don't think, or they weren't big. I mean, it's also like if you want to do this stuff on the cheap, most, you know, this is kind of a theme with me is everything I've done has been kind of on the cheap. Buying a bunch of books, it's not that expensive, and you can just sit and learn on your own time. How did how did you end up at Go Cardless? Yeah, so I knew uh, two of the founders, Matt and Hiroki, had been at McKinsey, and they'd joined McKinsey a year before me and left a year before me. So they had, in that time, managed to get this thing off the ground. They'd gone out, and they'd done Y Combinator, and then they came back, and they had raised their seed round, and... I got in touch with them or they got in touch with me and plan was I would do a three-month internship there and I'd get to see what a startup looks like about a year in and they'd just get a bit of help from me doing things in Excel because I was renowned at McKinsey for being an Excel wizard. And then I just stayed. I, you know, I think within a week I realised there were some really talented people uh, at GoCardless and... That it was, you know, it was getting somewhere. If you're the person crunching all the numbers at a startup, then you have the best seat in the house for understanding whether or not that company is doing well. And I could see it was doing really well, so I stuck stuck around. And I was there for four and a half years in the end. For people that don't know, can you tell me a little bit more about um, what GoCardless Go do? Um, sort of the how they were set up when you joined? You said there were six people, but sort of how, how, how was it? And what did you join as after the internship? Yeah. GoCardless is a direct debit provider. It makes it easy for small and now large merchants to collect payment by direct debit. So historically, if you were a small merchant, think somebody like a personal trainer, you just couldn't get access to direct debit at all. If you went to your bank and said, oh, I've got all these customers that pay me subscriptions i'd like to take the money by direct debit your bank would say absolutely not it's really quite a complicated scheme and you are a personal trainer no no thank you so you kind of had to take payment by card and it was quite expensive and it was a bit of faff so gokandas came along and it wasn't intending to do that but it had its own payments problems to start with and it got access to direct debit and then it realized it could share that access with these smaller merchants and kind of wrap it up in a safe mode that made it very easy for anybody to use and impossible for them to mess up. And and to be clear, the reason why I, I stress messing up, most people don't understand, but when you sign a direct debit to somebody, you are opening up a link between your bank account and their bank account, which lets them pull as much money from your bank account as they like, whenever they like. So if they accidentally submit a request to their bank saying they'd like to pull £20,000 from your account rather than twenty, the banks will honour that. That will happen. And then you have this corresponding right to reverse that, which the bank will also have to honour. 
but you can imagine if you give access to this very powerful scheme to somebody who's just trying to collect you know football subs on a sunday things can go wrong and the banks then get really nervous so that's why i talk about go carlos wrapping it in a safe mode and yeah so we were six people and had just kind of started offering this service at businesses there were like a few hundred of them using it we all sat around one table at white bear yard and it was taking off people that used it loved it but most people had never heard of it so the next you know four and a half years was about building out the service keeping those people that used it that were using it loving it making it right for larger and larger companies and distributing it and i started off doing analytics and then i kind of moved around i was the person you just threw at any problem that other people didn't want to do so when we had to do a regulatory application for example and you know deal with the financial services authority which became the financial conduct authority that was me so i was the one that wrote the regulatory application for go cardinals i ran the customer support team for a few years i built all of the fraud detection and anti-money laundering logic at go cardless all of which will have been replaced by now by much better things and by greater minds i should add and then i ended up as vp of engineering doing the man management parts of uh running the engineering team and then i became head of product and i was also head of international expansion so direct debit is a uk scheme but it's also available in european countries with slightly different rules so go cardless expanded to let you collect payments in spain or from spanish individuals and so on and so forth for other countries cool that's that, that's interesting um and how do you think um it was possible for go cardless to to grow so quickly to, to go from six employees to a hundred employees over four years and a hundred was it a hundred k in monthly volume to a hundred million in in parser is that about right yeah that's about right it's just about fixing things when they break we didn't like have some great plan. There's no like one thing that made that easy. We would never have got started if it wasn't for the very enlightened approach to regulation that the Financial Conduct Authority has, which is that they have a very straightforward application for small institutions. And it's only when you become large that you have to jump through all of the hoops made it very easy to get started that's basically why london is a is a fintech hub like the financial conduct authority deserve a huge amount of credit there but then in terms of growth you're just riding this wave you're constantly trying to make the customers that you have advocates and then make the customers that they bring in advocates as well and that's how you get this compounding growth we never had a a big secret about how we were gonna gonna get folks in we were never brilliant at the distribution side. We retrofitted marketing and sales to the company later. I, I think that's quite an important thing, though, because you didn't go out there to, to to market a company. For me as a marketer and a lot of people in my sphere, we do marketing. We're, we're not as focused on the product. We're not as focused on creating brand advocates and riding a wave and capturing a niche, all, all these sorts of things that go cardless focused on first so do you think that initial growth came from hitting those things instead of marketing because there, there's going to be a certain scale a company gets to when marketing is needed 
and it's needed just to or marketing and PR to sort of have that front end pretty look but I I, I do, do you think that growth of a company especially in the early days is because of those other things I think it really depends who your customers are so at the time in fintech in London there were really three companies there was TransferWise, there was GoCardless, and there was Funding Circle. And they were like the three early fintech darlings. And there were others that get a bit overlooked, but those were the three that people talked about. TransferWise were fabulous at marketing. That was their like core competence. Mm. Their product at the time was not very good. I would argue that they have like retrofitted product, but really they were a marketing company to start with. And they did these amazing stunts and everybody like you know talked about their brand funding circle were good at the business side they struck deals with the government in order to like have the government as one of their lenders to small businesses they did these amazing things because that's what they needed to be really good at they were a b2b lender and gocardless was a payments company you can't be a payments company that's bad at product if you're a payments company that's bad at product, then half of the time, your customers' customers are unable to pay. That gets people really mad. Half of the time, people's payments end up in the wrong place. That gets people even madder. You kind of have to be good at product. Yeah, marketing is really important for every company sooner or later. Like, it certainly really matters to a company like GoCardless at the stage that it is now. But in the very early stages... Some companies need to have it as their core competency. I think if you're doing B2C, you need that as your core competency. And some customers, some companies need to have something else as their core competency. And I'm sure they benefit from great marketing as well. But normally, as a startup, you are relatively poor in your kind of... Well, you can't be great at, at multiple things at once in the early days as a startup you're lucky if you're great at any is there any sort of marketing that you did at go cardless that sort of sticks out or anything you did well consistently over time we were about 50 people before we started putting senior resource into marketing before we hired a, a head of marketing who had you know proper experience and she then had a difficult time trying to trying to make the company take that seriously and trying to run experiments and develop GoCardless's marketing brand when a bunch of product people and engineers had strong feelings about what GoCardless was already that weren't grounded in any kind of like marketing principles and, and weren't particularly serving us well. We took design seriously. The reason GoCardless took design seriously is because it, it falls between product and marketing, right? And we knew we needed great design for product. And we had a fantastic designer early on called Al Monk, who just did an amazing job of making the product incredibly simple to use, but also really aesthetically pleasing. So four and a half years, you're at GoCardless. Yeah, Good long time. Yeah. What, what did you do after that? Why did you leave? When you're a really early employee, you've always got this slight chip on your shoulder, which is, when am I going to do my one? There's a big difference between being a founder and being an early employee on a bunch of dimensions. You have a bunch less equity. You have a much, much lower profile. And even within the company, there are certain jobs that aren't going to be your job. I ended up being kind of like deputy CEO at GoCardless, but I was never going to be 
CEO because I didn't start it. It wasn't my company. And so at some point I was like, okay, I got to do my own one here. I need to test my metal. And I thought, okay, no, four and a half years is a long time. I'm not getting any younger. I'm not getting more likely to start my own thing. We're 100 people now. I'm not learning the skills I need to start my own thing. If I ever want to go back. You left Gokarda, said goodbye. What did you do after that? I had a nice period and everybody was asking, oh, what are you going to do, Gray? What are you going to do? And I needed to come up with something. So I was like, oh, I'm going to take a break and I will go on a cycle trip. And they were like, oh, where are you going to go? And I was like, well, I'll, you know, I'll cycle to Australia. <laughs> and then that kind of like gathered momentum as an idea. I thought, it, you know, I, it wasn't completely off the spur of the moment that I, that I came up with it, but it, it wasn't something I'd ever thought about doing or planned or like, you know, a lifetime ambition. And so I kind of backed myself into this corner where I had to cycle around the world and I did this seven-month ride from here to Singapore and then across Australia, across the US, and then back to London. It was a lot of fun. That's, that's awesome. What, what was your favourite part of the trip? There were so many. It's really hard to like just pick one. It's like seven months. There was a great moment cycling into Istanbul and across the Bosporus Strait into Asia. That was amazing. There were some amazing moments in the US, like where people were just insanely generous. There were some big moments in like countries I never thought that I would go to, I'd never even heard of, cycling through Uzbekistan. And well, I'll tell you one story from cycling. Go on, tell me. I, the whole bloody interview would be stories otherwise. Uh, I was cycling through Uzbekistan and every every night I would camp by the side of the road and the secret with camping by the side of the road which is mostly illegal and definitely illegal in Uzbekistan which is a police state is to camp somewhere where you won't be seen but I had screwed it up and I got dark and I was on the outskirts of this city and I didn't think I was going to like get out of the city for another couple of hours so I was like, okay, well, I need to find somewhere to camp here. So I was going to do an urban wild camp. And I'm looking around, and I see these massive concrete girders. They're like a metre high in, like, they're big triangles, and they're arranged in a big triangle. And I was like, I bet I could climb over those concrete girders and pitch my tent in the middle, and then nobody would see me. That would be the perfect urban wild camp so i hoik the bike over these big concrete girders and i get into the middle and i pitch my tent and i just get into my tent and i start taking all my food out to eat which is like my evening routine and at that moment i start hearing voices and somebody shines a torch on the tent and there's like a bunch of people and they're talking uh uzbek and this is not good and they come down and they want to see my passport and they want to check that I'm not a spy. And once they've established that I'm not a spy, they're just like laughing at me. And then they point. And it turns out these concrete girders are being used to build a bridge. And the workers that are building the bridge sleep on the bridge that is half built. And the bridge is like obviously up high, looking straight down on where I have camped. <laughs> and so when I've got my phone on in the, in the tent, I'm like lit up like a lantern for all these folks on the bridge. And they're like, no, 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 you can't camp here. They don't say this in English, but they like, you know, gesticulate. And they're like, you sleep with us on the bridge. And I'm like, really, really? And they're like, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> and so they, they're really, really insistent. So I pack down the tent, which is another faff. And then they like they wheel my bike up a like forty five degree like mud slope to get it onto this half built bridge, where there are a dozen like Uzbeki laborers sleeping, um, and they say you know here 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 you sleep here. So I would like pitch pitch my my little tent which has got a mosquito net. So I want to be in the mosquito net. I slept on this bridge with these uh, Uzbeki construction workers. And the next morning they all sit round in a circle and they share breakfast. Uh, and they wanted to, you know, like, you know, they all sit around and have tea and they wouldn't accept any food from me. They were determined that like they would share with me, but I would, I would only receive and they're the most like generous group of group of guys you've ever met. It was just like this lovely, lovely experience where having started the night trying to hide myself away from anybody, you end the next morning with a like, bunch of new friends. It's amazing. You know what? I could I could talk to you all day about your 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 cycle around the world and it, what an amazing experience. It was a lot Just of fun. What are sort of the things you you took away from that? It teaches you a bit about resilience. If you get an opportunity to do a big trip like that, I would absolutely take it in a heartbeat if you possibly can. And it doesn't have to cost a lot. It's probably better if it doesn't, you know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. My trip. I learned lots about, well, lots about resilience, a bit about like how not to burn out. And I think they're kind of the same thing. A lot about how nice everybody is all over the world. And a lot about like empathy and, and human kindness and, and all that good stuff. Resilience is, resilience is the big one. Like if you do a really long ride, things break. If you go for long enough, things will go wrong. That is life. And it's how you deal with it. It's how you get it fixed that determines whether or not you keep going or not. And there's a lot of that that's relevant to startups. There's a lot of the time when it feels like you just need to sprint. That if you just get over this hill, then that's it. But it's very seldom the case. Things take a long, long time. And most people end up quitting. And most businesses end up failing. And a lot of the time, it's because... You're not taking good enough care of all the little things about yourself and all the little things about your business and making sure that each day things are a little bit better than they were the day before on every dimension and nothing's like wearing out. When you get back seven months, were you raring to get go at another job or did you start your own thing? What did you do? I felt full of energy. Like, you get back and you have this, like, massive sense of relief and you get to sleep in a bed again and have running water and the ability to, like, heat food. And those things were amazing. And I was full of energy thinking, okay, right, the next thing is, is a startup and I've had my break and, and now it's, you know, time to... Were you sort of thinking that when you left GoCardless? Well, when you joined GoCardless, it was... You would do want to do your own thing. Yeah, I would say that is one of the few times when I have actually executed on the plan that I started <laughs> with. Because I did. I left Go Cardless and thought, I'm going to take a break and then I'm going to start a thing. And I took my break and I came back and I wanted to do something in healthcare. And I tried really hard to build something to make it easier for you to see your GP, your NHS GP. I wanted to build the same kind of software that a bunch of the private providers have 
to make it easy for you to do a video call with a private GP to do it with an NHS. So yeah, how, how did your healthcare startup go? I have absolutely tanked, got absolutely nowhere. So I ended up volunteering for an organization in Hackney, which is a federation of all the GP surgeries there. And I got a really great idea of what the problems that individual GP surgeries face are. But I also realized how hard it is to distribute any technology within the NHS. It's a lot to do with like business models and who can actually buy this stuff. So a GP surgery isn't responsible for buying things for the benefit of patients. They can't pay for that. GP surgeries are small businesses in their own right. And they are not responsible for spending their own discretionary budget on patient care. For that, you need to go to the clinical commissioning group. But the clinical commissioning group aren't the people that actually use any software that's created. So getting, building a product that GP surgeons want to use, that the clinical commissioning group want to buy, and that NHS England accredits as something that they can buy, becomes a really thorny problem. And how long until you sort of realise that? How long through you trying to build this thing? I dedicated about six months to that. And early on in that period, in order to stop myself going insane, along with Harry, who's my co-founder and wanted to be my co-founder on the healthcare stuff as well, we built this little thing called Dependabot, which became now my full-time gig as a side project to stop us going insane. So you t tell me a little bit more about Dependabot. Dependabot was kind of born out of this problem that we had at GoCardless, which was keeping our dependencies up to date. It's a really boring problem. It's quite a small problem. But as a result, it's the perfect thing to build a side project on. So if you write code, you probably pull in loads of other people's code off the internet and use that. That's kind of what open source dependencies are. Other people are improving that code all the time. And so if you're not updating the version that you're pulling in, then you're on old versions and you may be on insecure versions, which is really, really bad. It's not exactly sexy. It's not the big problem that every engineering team has, but it is a little problem that every engineering team has and would be something that we could just fix. We didn't think it was going to be a big business. How powerful do you think is is solving a little problem but doing it well having because your audience is fucking small it's a niche of a niche so you, like how can you make that work well the thing about tech is if you've got the best thing basically everybody should use it it's not like running a hotel where if you make the best hotel you're not going to drive all the other hotels out of business. Your hotel's going to be full, but they're going to get all the extra capacity. If you build the best piece of software, you get 100% of the market. So your ability to go after niches hard is a lot higher than in other industries. And then there's a big difference between things like Dependabot, which are very tightly scoped, but it's probably incorrect to describe as niche. I do it all the time. But everybody that writes software has this problem. It's just that it's a very small one of many problem. So you're solving something very small, but that actually affects a lot of people. 
You know, there's like well over a million organizations paying to use GitHub. I think basically all of those should have some kind of solution to keep their dependencies up to date. If I can get all of them using Dependabot, then that's quite a big market. So uh, what, what was it like getting those first few customers onto it? But yeah, so we had this thing. We were like, okay, well, we've built this great thing. Everyone's going to want it. They're like me. They'll just see the value. We'll just do like a, you know, a marketing launch. We'll write a great blog post and we'll put it all over Hacker News <laughs> and job done. Then we can get back on building our healthcare stuff because we don't want to be focusing on this. This was just a like distraction to stop ourselves going insane. And so I spent two days, two full days, analyzing all of the vulnerabilities that had happened in open source dependencies over the last 10 years and putting together beautiful graphs, perfect for the Hacker News crowd, writing up our like clickbaity blog post. And it came to launch day and we put it live and it absolutely tanked. And it tanked on Reddit and it tanked everywhere else that we put it. And we had one sign up by the end of the day on the big launch day on the big launch day <laughs> and it was a oh man that is really depressing that gets you down because you built this up in your mind as this is going to be a red letter day this is going to be one that you know all that work that i've done building this product over the last you know month and a half kind of comes good and in fact you get paid back nothing in terms of like you know positive energy and emotion i think we were just really low at the end of that and it was miserable so how did you sort of start growing your first customers after your not so successful launch well i mean the first thing we did was like really hound all of our friends and acquaintances to get them to install it so you know paid a social cost and got 40 users or something from that but that wasn't really enough that, that didn't feel like it was critical mass yet so what I then started doing is spamming people on GitHub who had done something that the robot could have done for them. And I would go on and find their pull requests using a you know fancy GitHub search and write a comment saying, hey, I wrote this robot and it could do this for you and it's great and you should use it. Please use it. It's free. And that worked quite well. I couldn't find that many of those people each day. But the ones that I could find like 50% of them signed up and maybe only 10% of them like reported me to GitHub and said that I was spelling. <laughs> so in the early days were you literally just scraping trying to find people that yeah. could have done things that Dependabot could have done? Yeah. How many people were you messaging a day? Maybe like maybe like 20 tops. A day? Yeah. Individual like handwritten mess and like I literally handwrote these I didn't even copy paste them because I was like I was feeling bad I didn't want to be a spammer and like Obviously, all those people assumed that I had copy-pasted this message, but actually, they were like, you know, handwritten notes. I really like that because um, a lot of people don't see the effort that goes into growing something at the start. They don't. You see a really successful startup um, or entrepreneurs that have, that have made a lot of money with their business, and you think, well, they just got lucky. But you don't see that sort of stuff, spending, sending 20 messages a day hand sourcing and then writing out personalized tailored messages and those sort of early but because when you're first starting out and you don't have a bigger brand or people don't know who you are you do need to have that little bit more of a personal touch and actually um, engage with them that way and yeah, yeah it works 
I mean, it's it's the do things that don't scale mantra. But like most people don't take that on board as much as they should. In those really early days, doing that like concierge sales, even if you are literally giving away your thing for free, is so valuable. Because even the people that didn't sign up told me why. And they told me why normally, relatively politely, they said, oh, I'd love to use this, but I'm worried about these things. And that's what I use to make the product better. Sometimes I could be like, oh, wow, okay, I'm going to change that today. I'm going to change that tomorrow. And sometimes I had to be like, that is a really good point, and I need to think about it. Um, there's nothing I can do about it straight away. But at least I knew it. I knew the like product not only from the inside, but from the outside by the end of that like few months. And that was super valuable. I did that for about two months. How, and how many customers two months in? We had 240 but that, this wasn't two months in because there was a period before we figured I figured out that this worked when I wasn't really doing anything. I was trying to like write more blog posts or like tweet, repost the original blog post to Hacker News desperately. You know, it was like a good month or two of like just being in the wilderness. I, I, I look at that and I go, you can't put out blog posts or try to put out a few tweets and expect to grow at all. And I, I, I surprisingly see a lot of companies do this. But you, you do need that little bit of traction. You need a bit more of an audience for that. So, yeah. So, after two months, what, what did you start to, to do then? So, like, the big change for Dependabot was we got into this thing called the GitHub Marketplace. Dependabot is a developer tool, and it creates pull requests on GitHub, which is a place where people store their code. And GitHub kind of, like, own the game in terms of developer tools. They are the place that developers spend most of their time. And they had just introduced this marketplace where you could have apps like our app and they would take the payment on our behalf and, and pay it out to us. And they'd also kind of advertise us within their platform. So the goal was always to get into this marketplace, but they, were, they wanted 250 signups before they would let us in. They wanted some sign of legitimacy. And so at 240 signups, we got to a point where they were willing to put us in the marketplace. And so overnight, our distribution problem wasn't solved, but was dramatically improved. Because then we were getting like maybe 20 signups a day just from people finding us in the GitHub marketplace. We had these people signing up from Japan. And there is no way that anything that I had done had reached anybody in Japan. I'm, you know, assiduous in my PR spamming, but I do not <laughs> speak Japanese. You need to do sales for your first 100 customers. Like, even if your thing is B2C, you should do sales because you will understand your product and you will understand your customers dramatically better if you do sales for your first 100 customers. My philosophy has always been to put pleasing existing customers first make sure that we're retaining those customers make sure we're turning those customers into advocates making sure the product is always getting better and then with any extra time i have that's when i think about okay how can we distribute to others how can we make people that have never heard of this aware of it but it's we're really word of mouth driven and that works in developer tools Word of mouth is pretty powerful and developers are very skeptical 
So I haven't found other channels that have great returns. But yeah, it's, you know, we've been in that marketplace for 18, 19 months. And every month, you know, we've, you know, tried to grow by, you know, 20% or something like that. And it's hard work. But generally, it's come from pleasing the existing folks rather than targeting new ones. And that just shows how powerful word of mouth is. And I've said this a lot on the podcast and with a lot of different guests we've got on, that sort of same tune is ringing true throughout. It is word of mouth, pleasing your existing customers, building a great product is how you can grow. It's not always these marketing stunts. I I also think you need it. I I think marketing is needed when you get to a certain scale but the most powerful way to grow your product, to grow your business, is through word of mouth. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. And like there's things we do there a little bit. Like we, when you merge your 100th pull request from Dependabot, we put a comment in with a you know little celebration saying, this was your 100th pull request, isn't that amazing? If you like the service, please tweet about it. You can click here if there's one already written for you. We're trying to lower the friction to people, you know, putting that word out and trying to, like, help them empathize with us as a small company and realize that, you know, we need their help. And that helps a bit. We see a, a decent number of people, you know, do tweet that tweet and every time it puts a smile on my face. That, that's a really nice touch. And what sort of other things have you added like that? The other thing that I found really turns people into evangelists is when they get in touch with support and you get back to them really fast. It doesn't matter how broken things were before. If I can fix something quickly, then suddenly they just feel really valued. Those people often go on to either like refer whatever massive company they happen to have like done some contracting work with years before or you know to kind of really evangelize on on Twitter. So it's really like high touch customer support makes a huge, huge difference. And you do a lot of the customer support yourself, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Like there's nothing outsourced on, on that. If you get in touch with Dependable, I almost certainly see it, no matter how you get in touch with us. Uh, and I do it all hours of day and night. Well, I mean, I do sleep. It's the first thing I check in the morning and the last thing I check at night. And that's tough from a lifestyle perspective. But it makes a difference. That rapid response, people often aren't expecting it. But when they get it, they're really thankful. Absolutely. And uh, I think um, maybe other people in your position will think, Gray, just put it on Product Hunt. That will get you a thousand sign-ups straight away. So, you know, obviously, depending on what went on Product Hunt, and I think we were in the top 10 and we had about like 25 signups or something like that from Product Hunt. Product Hunt, you know, seems Product, great. Product Hunt's brilliant. But yeah. I think like focusing your launch on Product Hunt. Well, it can't be your whole distribution mm. strategy, can it? Like you might get a few seed customers there. Look, I mean, like at this point, Dependable was free and essentially instant to sign up the only thing that we take is your like github username we use github we mm. don't even take your email address it's extremely low friction so if somebody is getting an order of magnitude more signups than dependabot got from their product hunt launch then i'm super impressed 
But I think for most people, that won't be the experience. So going back to um, get, getting on GitHub Marketplace and trying to go from there, how consistent has the growth been and how have you sort of focused your efforts on building it up? It's been relatively consistent. It's that depressing thing of as your business grows, you won't hit the same percentage growth numbers each month. It gets harder as your base gets bigger. So in the early days, it was easy for us to hit 25-30% growth in a month revenue. Nowadays, we're lucky if we hit 20%, sometimes we're down at 15 And so when you look at our growth curve, it's not quite linear, but it does look a bit more linear than I would like it to. We keep that up with a bunch of things, right? So we've kept improving the product, expanding into like new areas. So for us, that's new languages that Dependabot can support. We make sure that like we're as present as we can be on Twitter. We try and partner with GitHub wherever we can. So things like, you know, joint blog posts, that's like a big boost for us. None of those things make a huge difference on their own. There's nothing that we found that was like a golden, you know, there was nothing that we found that was a silver bullet, but we've ground out a decent growth number every month through a bunch of different hustle each time. There isn't a formula that we've found. What sort of advice would you give to to bootstrappers, people trying to build a company to stick with it and to keep being cons- consistent with it because they might be expecting to see that hockey stick growth that they, they see on Twitter all the time? What, what sort of advice would you give to them? You're not alone if you don't have that and you can build something extremely valuable without it. Most growth comes from hard work. Sometimes you hit on something that will drive your growth for however many months without loads of hard work. But let's be clear, like a huge amount of the growth at, you know, Go Cardless, which is now worth half a billion or something, a huge amount of that just came from like hard graft each month. There wasn't some magic growth engine. Same at Dependabot, might well be the same at your thing. Second, when you have a good day, Do not make that your new normal. Do not assume that tomorrow will also be good. Tomorrow will likely not be good. Tomorrow might even be bad. And if you're coming down from this great day thinking all my problems are solved and suddenly you're plunged into the depth of, oh, I've actually lost revenue today. I've had somebody churn. That's when you'll quit. That's when you'll jack it in because psychologically you couldn't take it. So be really level-headed about your growth. Don't compare yourself to other startups. When you hear somebody else got a 1,000 signups on Product Hunt, when you see some venture-backed company that's growing by 50% month on month, and somebody else posts on Indie Hackers and their growth numbers are much, much better than yours, your business is different. Your business can still be a success. You need to persevere with it, Comparing yourselves to others, particularly others that are writing blog posts for marketing purposes, is not the way that you win. You win by focusing on your own thing and by keeping going. Well, why didn't, why haven't you, or why didn't you raise for raise funding for Dependable? Why have you bootstrapped it? 
to start with, because it was never intended to be a real company, right? It was intended to be a side project while I did some healthcare stuff. So it didn't start with a like vision to be a VC-backed company. And then it slowly became my full-time gig. And as it slowly became my full-time gig, I started getting more people getting in touch, asking you know, if I was going to raise for it and if I wanted to. And I thought about it, and I wasn't sure whether or not this was ever going to be a company that was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And if it wasn't, did it make sense to raise? Because once you raise, you kind of like lock yourself in to a certain trajectory. You change the exits that are good. If you raise, maybe not seed, but certainly if you raise a Series A, then your investors are going to have a bunch of liquidity preference over you, which means if you end up selling for less than, you know, whatever it is, the valuation that you took, you're not going to walk away with very much money at all. Whereas if you can build that a little bit slower, but still build it to that valuation without raising and sell it for, you know, 10 million and take home all of that, then that's an amazing result. So for financial reasons, I looked at it and thought, oh, okay, I'm not sure that raising makes a ton of sense. And the other thing was, Dependabot has some competition, but it is the market leader by some distance. Didn't need to raise money in order to win in this market. And if you're in a market where that's the case, you're probably better keeping the company for yourself. Your return's probably going to be better that way. So it didn't have to raise. It didn't make sense to. Having spent a you know long period at GoCardless and you know I was in every board meeting at GoCardless, so I know how that works. That's not so bad. I think in some areas it makes sense. If you're building a payments company, you almost certainly want to raise some money. There's like huge barriers to entry. Yeah, that's and true. It's a real go big or go go home like environment. But raising shouldn't be the default and raising certainly isn't a mark of success in itself. The fact that you were like able to persuade some people to give you some money that aren't going to like actually use your product. That's not for me a sign that you have built something valuable. It shouldn't be where you get your validation from. And I wonder if you know, in five years' time, when maybe the funding environment is less, you know, straightforward, we'll be talking about paths where, or like companies where it just doesn't make sense to raise again. Whereas right now, it very much feels that everybody that starts a company chooses to go the VC route. Yeah, definitely. And I think we'll sort of start to, to wrap it up there. Um do you have any sort of last thoughts or any anecdotes from from building Dependabot and a go-cardless? Any advice you give to people? When I was cycling, people would say, do you get bored? You know, do you ever have days where just like nothing happens? And I was like, something happens every day. Some small thing happens every day that means it's not boring. Building business isn't really like that. Building a business is much more if you look back at a whole month and you think, oh, wow that's happened there were definitely times you know a customer gets in touch that's like a big name somebody that like you know you've properly heard of slack used dependabot and when they got in touch you're like oh wow you know i've, I've built a thing that a company as large as as that wants to use but those moments 
are just the culmination of loads and loads of sweat over a long, long period. Some guy that used it on his personal account and liked it and got in touch and I didn't realise where he worked and somebody else there that also saw it or whatever. So they don't turn into pithy anecdotes. The one, th- I mean, the one thing that happened with the Penderbot that really put a smile on my face was waking up one morning and checking Twitter and there were a bunch of tweets completely in Japanese and <laughs> a link to this blog post. And I click through to the blog post and there's an illustration at the top of it that somebody's drawn of a, a Japanese man with his arm around a, a robot. And the whole blog post is about their new robot friend, Dependabot, written completely in Japanese with this wonderful cartoon. And that was one of those moments where you're like, wow, I've built something that really has a life outside of me. <laughs> and it's kind of wonderful. That's, that's awesome. All right. Emma, um, what, what advice would you give to people um, who, who are starting their company and they want to grow it? Don't give up. Start with sales, not marketing. If you can, build something that like you yourself want. It'll help you keep that focus later on this stuff takes ages and ages the companies that from the outside look like they're winning on the inside feel like they're losing that's how you will feel every day it is really tough and it's only when you look back after 24 months that you'll realize you've built something bigger than you thought you possibly could on day one that's awesome great Thank you so much for joining me. I've really enjoyed this conversation. We've spoken to Gray Baker today on the Marketing Mashup podcast, talking a little bit about his start um, in uh, the, the Uni of Cambridge, then moving through to working at McKinsey for two years, then going um, working at GoCard as a startup, growing that for four years, then cycling around the world, getting into all sorts of trouble and learning good things and a cycle trip around the world, then starting his own thing, Dependabot, doing well, 14K dollars in MRR, enjoying it. Um, hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much, Gray. Um, where, where can people find you? Thanks, James. Uh, I'm on Twitter, at Gray Baker, uh, and you can find Dependabot on GitHub. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Marketing Mashup Podcast. I thoroughly enjoyed it. After we recorded this episode, Gray actually sold his company to GitHub. Um, So congratulations, Gray. All your hard work paid off. If you did enjoy this episode, please leave a review on iTunes. I really, really appreciate it. Also, head over to Twitter, at Jay McKinnon. Give me a follow. Let me know what you thought on the podcast.